Welcome, people, to another episode of the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Michael Martin here with, with my partner, Mike Sauter. How's it going, Mike? Very good. Friday, uh, fun day Friday, free at last. Whatever those blue-collar songs they blast on the radio at noon, one of our radio stations has a good fun Friday. Yeah, grow up and do. Uh, so what's what's new? Anything good? I'm trying to think. You know, I some right before September, I uh, I'd been doing campus ministry and some work in funeral homes, and my bishop called and just asked if I'd run the local parish again. I don't know if I've mentioned it in a podcast. So I had about a week's notice and assumed I'm a layperson. There's a canonical, I don't know, canon law. Let's say two two fourteen point seven where a lay person kind of runs a so parish. It's a Catholic thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody else who's had this role knows it. You know, I, I'm institute according to 214.7, something like that. But uh, it's five rural parishes in Livingston County, New York, south of Rochester. And um, they're rural, you know, and, and it's uh, kind of getting them. Uh, I had done it for eight years previous. Then I worked over at the Trappist Abbey of the Genesee running the retreat houses. Now I'm back at it. And it's different. You know, I got to see parish life leadership, what was going on it was a snapshot. Then you're kind of freed up for it. And I worked six years in a monastery now back in the thick of it. And I'm finding poetry in the whole thing. You know, I, I'll have reports from the front, you know, but it's been two months and it's been a whirlwind. Um, and, you know, the, the, some of the good things are that when I was the first, when I was first assigned, I was the first non, I'm not even ordained a deacon, but the non priest leader. So I kind of held my cards, you know, you, you're worried about how you're perceived. And now I'm never a forceful leader, but this time, because I'd been in the role, I feel kind of, uh, and I was invited to come back. I feel that, you know, with some of the stuff we talk about, Michael, let's hope God grants the the possibility to actually do something with a Catholic parish. We're so isolated. I always say that instead of fighting for roles in the liturgy, being a layperson, I can represent the 2,000 plus square miles in our parish outside the church building and all those hours in the week outside the Catholic mass. You know, and that gets to the project of regeneration. Many of my peers around the country, non-priests were in this role. They find it's the liturgy wars. You know, what what role can they have on the altar? And I'm just like, let it go. I don't need to stay, you know, anything like that. So uh, it's a new development Keep for me. Keep your cassock. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, honestly, honestly. <laughs> yeah. You know, and we're so, we've been so isolated from, even those other symbols, Catholic hospitals, Catholic schools, in our county, it's like Catholic charities. We even offshore all that stuff that, you know, the Catholic faithful have now been so circumscribed to think that their whole identity is that one hour in that one building. And when that's what people are focused on, it's really hard to get uh, to create a culture where so people can see there's so right. much more for us to do if we can just wake up. Funny you should mention symbols because one of my projects this last week, I have been <laughs> it's kind of fits in with this i've been tanning lambs i saw that online you always post good pictures you said it was yes. super heavy when it was wet i couldn't yeah. it probably weighed 80 pounds the one when it was heavy it, it was so that was, but they only and when when they're not heavy when they're not wet they weigh i don't know a pound or two not much have you already so, eaten the lamb not the whole thing or it's okay. two of them it was two of them uh so i'm working on that and also speaking of symbolism and the Catholic thing. We're here to talk today about, amongst other, Jonathan Geltner, author of this absolute music, just came out recently uh, in the summer, I believe it was. And we'll also talk about the new Jesus the Imagination, number six, Flesh and Spirit, which came out as a much heavier, it's a much heavier thing than I thought it was. And Jonathan is many, many things. He's a brilliant translator of poetry, and he has a great uh, translation of Paul Claudez Bell's Five Great Odes, Angelico Press put out two years ago, John? Um, yes, <laughs> the summer of 20. Gosh, yeah. I kind oh, of imagine that, that selling pretty well. Summer. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> is that selling pretty well, Jonathan? Um, it is. Well. It is. Talk about, um, I, I think it, it, it could be worse. Attracted some some attention, Catholic, okay. self describing Catholic circles uh, in the wider poetry world. I don't think it's noticed particularly. That is uh, as much a problem with the publishing world. I, I would say I work as an editor too, and um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's it's partly a publishing world issue, um, but also a, a bigger cultural issue uh, with a sort of lack of receptivity or interest in anything that is rather obviously um, trading in the symbolic, mm. um, which of course <clears throat> traditional Catholic Christianity does. 
Um, and Claudel's imagination is completely formed by that way of thinking. So uh, I don't know how much, you know, how much interest would ever, would ever accrue around something like Claudel's Five Great Odes and the, the culture at large. But, uh, you know. It's shifting, right? This uh, Jonathan Pajot, who we'll have on, he's just using the word symbolism, this podcast. It's true. Yeah. That it is growing. It is growing. There is very much. It's still kind of a, sorry, I have to cough drop to keep myself from coughing at you the whole time. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, it is. It, and okay. that's very interesting to me. Um, although it's quite, well, it's quite chaotic. And it's, there's a lot of new interest in sort of Jungian type stuff. Uh, certainly Pajot is part of that, even though he's Orthodox Christian. But... Let me throw this in, though. Now, and this is one of the things I wanted to talk about anyway, and thanks for jumping right in. So you mentioned Claudel, right? And the first time, and I, I came late to Claudel. I mean, I was, I could have been 40 already. I don't know. Well, I was probably a little, and I was just blown away, not by necessarily the Catholicism, but by the imagination and the daring, Yeah, you know, which you also see, you know, in, you see it in Elliot, you see it in. A lot of those, um, one of my favorite poets, uh, Brother Antonine and William Everson, you know, and there was something going on, Catholic or Anglo-Catholic or Christian poetry in the middle of the 20th century that seems completely atrophy me now. I mean, and, you know, since I, when we started Jesus, the Imagination six or seven years ago, um, 2016 was that the seed dropped. Um, my ambition at that point was to, was to get something that was, you know, truly avant-garde catholic or christian poetry you know and which i hope <laughs> that at our best that we've done but um there's there's this weird thing that's going on in christian poetry that i think is contaminated by the kind of traditional and that's um people think to write this kind of catholic poetry or something it's all about sonnets and i have had so many poorly written poorly imagined sonnets sent to Jesus' imagination consideration. <laughs> it's like when I first started teaching college, I'd come home and I'd tell my wife, just get lock the kids in the basement. Civilization's coming to a crumble. It's, just, <laughs> it's over. So what, what do you think about that, John? Well, where is, the, all, where is the imagination? All, I'm married to a Catholic, but so obviously- and I a think, very fine one. I think, I, I think the art is doing great. Um, well, no, uh, look, I, I was a, officially- one of my hats at PhD was the Supreme Poetics guy. And back then, I knew something about contemporary poetry, but I don't claim to be um, very abreast of the situation now. However, I would say that just a general thing that happened to poetry in our culture is that um, prose took over almost everything poetry traditionally. Um, and since I'm a prose writer, mainly myself, uh, I don't have any particular guilt about that. But but actually, it didn't need to it didn't need to be a zero sum game. And I think poetry um, would be in a lot better shape if it was not actualist, all lyric poetry. If So Claudel, I mean, I, you can call the five great odes poetry, it's fine. Um, but it is long lyric poetry, it's big architectural form. He's, um, and I mean, it's not epic poetry in a proper sense, but it's, it's big, big scale. And in the 20th century, uh, among the modernists and, and um, their heirs in the middle part of the century, you see, <laughs> A total commitment to trying to to write massive poetic forms. I mean, it's just it's everywhere. Wallace Stevens has incredible long lyric poems. Um, the Maximus poems of Charles Olson. Ezra Pound drove himself completely insane trying to write the cantos. Literally, yeah. His life. yeah, no, quite really insane. And um, T. S. Eliot uh, is really quite concise. As he was after Ezra Pound edited him, but um, his his form, his structures are really pretty big. Um, it's just it's everywhere all the way up through i mean a lot the latest one i'm names merrill's which is crazy Ouija which thing, which harold bloom thought was one of the finest works of the late 20th century yeah i mean he was yeah. a weird guy but it yeah. was weird yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i like uh, how jonathan shrugged his shoulders on that one it is an amazing an amazing poem i mean it, it's a book it's a book like poem a big book um but it Anyway, you, you see those things all over. Um, Robert Bridges uh, writing The Testament of Beauty, which I think is great as 200 years. No one reads it. It's out of print. Um, but those, you know, poetry has that scope. And it seems to me that for about the last two generations, uh, most poets have not attempted that. There have been some attempts at it. They haven't been very successful, to my mind. Um, uh, but that would be one, one way for poets to recover um, something of the, the stature that the art was recognized to have was if they didn't shy away from narrative poetry, dramatic poetry, and also the the lyric forms that are much bigger, like Claudel's Odes. That that I mean, Claudel's Odes actually become 
basically dramatic poetry. That that's that's it is, but it's also drama. I mean, it's yeah. He, he wrote these dramas, um, and that's a close cousin to the odes there. So if poetry would get amps in that way, I think it would. Be it's interesting. A good thing. Um, the problem is you can't. I mean, yeah, the publishing world is up to the neck in presses and journals that will publish collections of short lyric poems, individual lyric poems. But finding someone who will publish and take on a really massive poetry project like that is, is much more challenging. Mm -hmm. um, and Why do you, you think know, that is? Zero uh, readership, do I think? Attention span problems? I'm not... You answer, John, but it's just, could you, could you imagine getting a young person to tackle something like that that but, takes sustained effort? But, we talked about Blake, who's going to tackle Jerusalem? Well, yeah. people have have attention spans yeah. to get it through a novel i mean i think well novels are shorter <laughs> than they used to be too um yeah i mean partly it comes from the sort of institutionalization of the art so you have to publish in order to get your creative writing job and the way to do that is to publish a bunch of little things interesting um, you can you can publish dozens and scores of individual lyric poems if they're short little and so when you go to write up your bio or in your cv it looks like you you know you're colossus you've got all these entries these items in um, whereas if you know, you've got like one epic poem thing or book length poem, it's like, yeah, okay, well, what's, you know, how come your name doesn't appear in 57 top journals? Or, and so it's the professional. That's I think, and, and the same thing, the same thing happens on the fiction side with short stories a bit, you know, no, nobody actually reads short stories and you can't hardly, um, you couldn't, you couldn't publish like stories. Which is interesting because again, by the middle of the 20th century, the short story was almost the American art form in letters, right? Yeah, it's it's very I mean, much a product of the, well, I should say its dominance is a fruit uh, American um, originated creative writing academic uh, system. But obviously there were short stories before that. It's it's an ancient form. It's just that um, as realist fiction, as, as like a collection of things, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit more modern. I mean, but I think the the real readership is for is for novels, for unified book lengths, whether it's prose or, in fact, poetry. If poetry could recover that, uh, because I think that that's why you read. You you bother to read something because you want to get immersed and sunk into something that's as big as a book, and um, to just be distracted by you know a poem here, a poem there. Um, is these days too similar to just like scrolling on social media or watching a TV show or something? I, I, to me anyway, I, I don't, I, I try to often think about like, what is it about reading itself that is unique? What does reading offer that nothing else does? Because it has a lot of competing media now. Um, gaming uh, are the two main ones. And then what do specific genres offer that nothing else does? Why would what what does a novel have to offer you or fiction have to offer that poetry doesn't? And I have my own weird answer these questions, but that's what I try to think about. Um, do you think that some of it is the um, at least a contributing factor? If we take the brain hemispheric thing again, from like the mm. the more literal left brain over to the more poetic right brain, that the novel still it can hang over here at one level. People might not get to the deeper levels. You know, there might just be the story. I like to get lost, escape. Versus, um, you know, that the computers, uh, the same John Sullivan we mentioned, you know, he was saying that computers, they work on what we would call the left brain, you know, that they, it allows the more feminine, intuitive, poetic side to atrophy. But conversely, you know, it, it hypertrophies the left brain. And so, um, you know, when you're saying they're still publishing a lot of these books of short poems, you know, I'm just doing the surface level culture studies thing. You know, we have a short attention span, but are people even reading those books or do we like to collect poetry because they're like feathers <laughs> in our cap? You know, read them. and of course, we're not going to read the long ones because again, the, the, the right brain is atrophied and nobody could well, possibly go yeah, in. Yeah, I mean, it's a specialized art form at this point. It's kind of it's like jazz. It's like classical music or jazz mm -hmm. yeah. or opera or something. The, the people who are involved in the art, one way or the other, read or participate. Yeah, right, right, right. But the people, regular people don't. Whereas with prose fiction, that's not the case, at least with novels. Mm -hmm. Actual regular people you might run into on the street, in fact, still read novels. And they do. Yeah. Fiction. And you can make a novel into a movie and you can't make a poem. Yeah, although I'd I'd love to see a movie of like, yeah. <laughs> wait, it's, it's was, called well, Wings of Desire. There, yeah, Wings of Desire is basically yeah, but um, uh, but look at I mean I think that's a great example. Um, and this I mean when I saw Wings of Desire, we should probably do a show on that one day. Um, I was I saw it when it came out at the Detroit Film Theater because it was not showing in run media cinema plexes and it's completely blown away but that i had no idea you could make them it was so poetic and it was so 
life affirming at the same time while while acknowledging travail. But do you know why that movie's so so brilliant? It's really a novel. You have all the you have all the thoughts of the characters. You have the Homer character, and you hear him talking, and you have Marianne thinking in French and speaking right. German uh, in Berlin. And um, that that's what a novel does. I, I go on about and this. I agree. And I, I think that's what what we see in because uh, I just did it this week with students. Uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, they never know what to do. I don't know what to do with this project, Professor. And like, do something, you know, I mean, base it on something. You know, I tell, tell them, like, if you read interviews with the Beatles, you know, that what they were doing, they, was, they were imitating Buddy Holly or Elvis or whomever, right? And as Salvador Dali said, I became myself by imitating Masonia, right? Mm-hmm. So Chesterton said, if your first novel, you know, sounded like Dickens, that's great. If your second one did, you're a failure, right? That's but right. of course, it's the same point, you know, but, that you, you but, begin by imitating. And I told, and I, and I showed, I told them about they don't really have literature courses, so I told them about Ulysses being based on the the Odyssey, and I played them. There's a film clip of they tried they made a film of Ulysses. I don't know if any good. I've only seen this clip of the end of Molly Bloom's soliloquy, which is fantastic. It's just you know it's profoundly moving, and the students were, I had some of them in tears. Um, but those high modernists, you know, we're talking about, and I, and we can you know you can talk. Uh, Joyce is part of it, right? And that. There was such daring that was going on in the arts at, at that time that I don't know. Did they breathe new life into the novel? And um, and it you know and that's you know again going back to when I started this imagination was what I wanted to capture. I wanted to get find something in in letters that was not only avant garde but you know profoundly meaning like Wings of Desire or. Like, in fact, John said he's not really a poet. Oh, yes. He, and I can't, I was looking for it. It must be in the garden, which I don't have at hand. Uh, your your poem about meeting Christ, the dream about Oh, the dream Christ. of uh, Jesus. Yeah. That's a fantastic yeah, when I was poem. That's one of my favorite things. I'll I've look published. for it. Seriously, one of the, my favorite things that I've, I've had, the one that stuck with me, all the different things we stuck with. Let me try to bring together before we go on to a different subject, if we do. But I think I've got something that brings together Claudel. Um, symbolism, uh, Jesus, the imagination, the word, the imagination, right? If we're plugging this uh, journal at all, you know, imagination can mean many things. But at one level, for me, I've always thought one of the things that probably hurts poetry reading and so forth is, and I festered on this on the page of the Front Porch Republic, and I think twice in Michael's journal, I had an article in one uh, on love, I guess, or marriage on grail and anti-grail quests. But I've always thought that one working definition of the imagination, if we need to get people launched, two working definitions, one would be putting yourself into another person's place, right? The idea that um, to just once in your life, like the grail quest, what are you going through? The other one related is to me, you have this notion that something about the infinite expanses of outer space for me is like a stink bomb to the imagination. You know, we're, we're, we can be big in the universe or small in the universe. Seeing it both ways is the imagination. But we have, at least for the 20th century, we have this wild conspiracy, this bias to see one side of the equation that a quote to Stephen Hawking, you know, you're pond scum in a universe that just doesn't give a shit about you. Anyhow, Paul Claudel saw through this. I have a quote from him that said, and again, Paul Claudel was a, an imaginative genius. Huh, I wonder where that comes from. But he said the whole 19th century was persuaded that creation was infinite, that beyond this world lay others, innumerable others, all populated with intelligent souls and creatures, perhaps superior to us. And then Claudel continues, he goes, there's no conception more foolishly vertiginous, more deleterious for the imagination, and more thoroughly demeaning for our dignity. You know, so I just, I've always sensed that thing, and I find it, you know, that Owen Barfield looked at uh, C.S. Lewis, and he said, my friend Jack is obsessed with these stupid phrases like Sirius the dog star is 1.5 gazillion trillion miles away. And Barfield wondered like, what is C.S. Lewis doing? Like, where does this take us when we fester on idiotic things like that? And I think the imagination, uh, again, Jonathan Swift, he went to one island where he was big and another island where he was small. The quote you can take from Gulliver's Travels is what he learned from that is he said, it helped me put myself into other people's shoes. It helped his, again, his imagination. You know, but Michael and I have had a show on William Blake who coined the term imagination. And we know this kind of imaginative force is also a very outward going force that can maybe redeem the universe. But I thought, you know, 
I couldn't, uh, talking about Claudel, the last time I dove into Claudel, and I think I was in correspondence with a scholar at Oxford about him, about this stuff. But again, he, he saw through this ruse that we've just been downloaded into us, that you're pond scum in the universe. Thomas Mann saw through this ruse, and it's in every one of his novels. I can find a section where he devotes to this in The Magic Mountain, certainly Dr. Faustus. But, you know, we need to see it both ways. Um, so that's, uh, I got on my soapbox. I'm getting off my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> if you... If anyone wants to follow that line of thought in his odes, the one to read is the last, which is called The, the Closed House. And um, that's the one you have published, right? With Jesus, the Imagination, the fifth ode? Michael Martin will answer that. I, I think it think is. I can look it up. Yeah. I think no. it's actually the fourth one. I think it's oh, okay. actually the fourth one that is in there. But um, yeah, it, Claudel um, has this weird, well, it strikes me, um, it's unfamiliar, right? this, this way of talking about the universe is closed, perfected, is finished, it's finite. And um, I don't like that either, to be honest with you, I guess. Just uh, the hip well, the reason, yeah. the reason he's talking in that way, um, it's a very metaphysical <laughs> way. I mean, I guess he's, he is able to perceive, to imaginatively perceive within creation, is in a constant way, what's it? Um, he's also able to perceive within it its eschatological perfection at any given moment. Um, and that's, that's, you could call that his Sophia. There's various ways to describe it. But, mm-hmm. um, and if, if you just look at this universe, we now as contemporary cosmologists, then yeah, it's whatever astronomical figures and facts. And, and you can't, I don't think you can undo that knowledge. We can't mm-hmm. just like forget that the actual cosmos is as large as, as our scientific. But I want to interject here, but we, what we still can do with, um, again, you go to a site called Scale of the Universe. I did it with a student the other day. That they, they, to what we know, they go out as far as they can and they go down as small as we can to the Planck length and the known universe. And then the interesting thing is when you have to measure it, man, there's always a stick figure in the middle to get some reference point. But you sure. can say to what scientists know right now, we're bigger than the smallest thing we know than we are smaller than the biggest thing we know. But even yeah. when you get down to the Planck's length, they represent it as a shape. And then you bring in Zeno, you could whack it up into a million sure. different parts. Yeah, or again, yep, yep, yep. Both it's, ways. There's no, there's no, yeah, there's no, there's Both no ways. way to, yeah. it's, um, yeah. And it goes, it does go back, you know, but, um, but I don't think, I mean, you know, Pascal famously said that the, the cold depths of terrified him. He couldn't, <laughs> couldn't imagine anything more fatal to um, like warm, wholesome human thought and culture than than speculating on the, the outer cosmos. You know who just actually published something about this? Um, amazingly, hero of my boyhood, William Shatner. Really? Who, uh, oh yeah, uh, I saw that. By God's grace, still among us on this earth. Uh, he's like 90 something now. Yeah, and he I took that he, travel with a Jeff Bezos' plane or? Yeah. Right. Well, he went up on, on Bezos's rocket um, and uh, and he, yep. he wrote this thing just recently, some <laughs> publication that I like never read. I did see it, too. It was great. I was cheering. And he's like and, and he's like what I saw out there when I looked out the way <laughs> it's just like it was not inspiring. It was horrifying and cold death filled vacuum or what I, it, mm-hmm. it made sense um but it's it's this beautiful thing and, and he says what it, what it actually did though was cause me to, to redirect my to the earth to the earth where we actually live and with meaning um in a new way and um you know he's not my background but um but you could there you could you could turn that into um a religious movie and um and and sort of repurpose the the horror of the the cold dark abyss um to sort of provide some bulwark to a, a more Sophian of the one corner of the cosmos that you actually know experientially. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, I, I do think we talk a lot about these days about re-enchantment and trying to live in a cosmos. And I do think that one of the greatest hindrances to that, um, well, there's two hindrances to it. One is that we only want enchantment to be good. We don't want to acknowledge that that necessarily entails the, the diabolical, the haunted. Brilliant insight. Yeah. The underworld and. Yeah. And then the other is that um, we can't like we can't um, we just we we're never going to be able quite to get back to the the, the sort of Ptolemaic universe and, and have the music, the spheres. And I mean, my novel is kind of about a guy who's hunted by this fact. Um, and it's just it's not available. You can't you can't go back. You can't unknow things that way. Um, and so like I you know C.S. Lewis's space trilogy is is a, an amazing thing um, that I I love those books. Uh, I love I love Lewis, but um, you know there is just something fundamentally flawed about that space trilogy in that <laughs> it it got disproven by spaceflight, which happened like right after he published the book. 
you know, I mean, it's just like we've actually been to Venus and, and you know, we've actually traveled interplanetary travel and we know that it's not full of, you know, he, the way he writes it, like the space between the Earth and um, or the Earth and Mars, the two planets they visit in that trilogy. It's like not just a, a cold vacuum, at absolute zero being shot through with like solar radiation that would kill you if you're exposed to it directly. It's it's like some kind of Dantean crystalline ether. Um, and that's awesome. It's so beautiful and poetic, but it's, I don't see how any contemporary, any modern person can possibly read that and be like, that's really cool. And also just, we know, to, and, and so, it, I mean, it's a danger you run into if you try to, um, I guess, blend fantasy and realism unworkable ways. Um, mm. But he so much, I mean, Lewis is just a wonderful example of a very modern person, he was, uh, who so much wanted to be able to inhabit again, that late medieval cosmos and, um, it, I, I, what I would like to find is a is a authentically modern way, somewhat thinking your way back into it. Um, that was great. So that's a great place, Dante Cosmos, to move into your novel. So absolute music. Uh, you don't have to don't have to unload the whole thing, but if you could tell our audience about the novel and g give a little description, and then we can get into it. Yeah, sure. Um, gosh, it is. I have to admit, it available from Slant Books and Slant at, Books and at all fine booksellers everywhere. Right. <laughs> if they don't have it, they're not a fine. It's that simple. I'm we have one in Geneseo. If they don't have it, I'm burning the place down. <laughs> That's right. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hear from the. Oh, oh we need just another reason to close small <laughs> bookstores, right? <laughs> It's the last one remaining in Rochester, but if they don't have your book, I'm saying, you know, we need Barnes and Noble. They're serious about their books, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the, uh, oh, well, Absent Music is a, is a first person novel. Um, it's written in the voice of a guy who writes fantasy, um, modern genre fantasy. And he's um, a learned and digressive and sort of speculative guy. Um, and he's at this very Dantean age of 36. Well, it's actually 36 in the book, middle 30s, you know, the middle of life's way. Um, and the, the main storyline tracks one year from the autumn to the autumn of 20, 2017 to 2018. Um, so there are some historical events reported in the book. Um, uh, bad, it's terrible events. Yeah. Church sex the abuse crisis. The McCarrick, the McCarrick scandal. Right? Uh, yeah, the summer 2018 scandals in the Catholic Church and... Um, the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh in yeah. October of 20. Uh, and McPhail is 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 uh, torn between his Jewish and his his Jewish heritage and his Catholic. He's a Catholic. Con um, and I think maybe I'll actually read in a minute the the part where he talks about his baptism. But um, but um, anyway, uh, he has he goes through a kind of crisis. He's a new father um, and he has a moral failure. Um, but uh, the book is is. Um, I mean, moral failure meaning he cheats on his wife right yeah he, yeah. he, he yeah he commits adultery and that adultery is is bound up with his larger um just sort Exist of loss loss of faith in an enchanted world which existential is, problem yeah yeah i mean he, he's a fantasist he writes fantasy because he wants to experience the world as enchanted he wants to to live in the new cosmos um, like just talking about and um at this stage of his life you know post-conversion um when he's becoming a, a father, um, he he loses ability. I mean, he he'd managed to find his way into it at one point, um, but but he loses it at least temporarily. Um, and it's you know, if it were likened to Dante, uh, it would only be like maybe the first third or half of the Divine Comedy. He doesn't get all the way out at the end, but there's doesn't get to paradise. But he no, sees it. no, yeah. he's on the way. He's maybe on the way up by means. But. Of and before you read, because I, 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 I just love the novel. And for me, you know, I'm, I'm a bit older than you are. So it, watching what McPhail was going through in his mid-30s, I mean, basically what I was going through in mid-30s, right? Which I think we all do. And what came to mind as I was reading it is, uh, and as Dante was going through mid-30s, right? And uh, Rudolf Steiner has these different categories of, different levels of soul that do so physical body body the astral body the ego that comes in then the intellectual soul which is the the, the journey from about 21 to 35 but one after that comes the consciousness soul which is exactly what i was thinking about as i was reading through the novel i was like this is just absolutely consciousness soul and i want to read this description from owen barfield's romanticism comes of age of the of what the consciousness soul is it's it's relatively uh it, the, 
That human consciousness is perpetually evolving was, of course, Steiner's perpetual theme. And he often described this particular stage of it, which I have tried to do, as the ego developing in a consciousness soul. The consciousness soul indicates the maximum point of self, the point at which the individual feels himself to be entirely cut off from the surrounding cosmos. And is for that reason fully conscious himself. He has attained complete self-consciousness at the cost of practically everything else. It is easily distinguishable from the intellectual in earlier states, in which, though clearly discerning itself from perceptible objects over against it in space, the ego still feels its words and thoughts to be part of itself. In the Middle Ages, the ego was still working. And, and Steiner talked about you know, the, this, in a way, is the age of the consciousness soul. Right yeah. where we and his project was too, like you were saying, John, was not to go back to the Middle Ages, but to go forward to uh, what Nicholas Berjayev would call the new Middle Ages. Yeah, because right? you can't you can't go home again. Right. Right. Um, yeah, uh, that's great, Michael. Thanks. I, I love to hear that brought in brought to bear on the novel because so um, a term that was new to me when I was in the MFA program, which is where I started writing them, was this thing called a novel of conscious. One of my supervisors um, who oversaw the beginning of that whole project, become absolute music, um, said I was writing a novel of consciousness, and I hadn't heard it before. And I, it's I find it to be a rich term, um, and. Uh, I understand it in various ways that really would map on very well to what you read from Barfield. Um, and so I was up to that in that absolute music that the, the narrator McPhail, he, so he just calls himself McPhail. Um, and there's some etymology behind that. It's a family name of his, but it's not his real name, his real surname, but it's his, the name he publishes. And McPhail um, <clears throat> is absolutely, so to speak, uh, uh, fallen into this, this phase, this consciousness where, where his, where he's cut off from, from the world and, and even his own wife and family. And um, uh, it, it's a problem, obviously. <laughs> and he doesn't really know how to get out of it, except, so, I mean, I don't wanna um, give away the end of the book in detail, um, but I would say that if there's a suggestion um, at the end that he is on his way toward getting out of this terrible sort of quagmire that is hypertrophied, consciousness that has just become so learned and clever about itself and about everything else but is unable therefore to live immediately um uh to to, to feel real presence um it's through uh the beginning of a recuperation of a kind of heritage that for mcphail is coming to him um and uh i you know i won't launch into that side of the book um but it's in there uh, the the one of the sort of um dominant Intellectual figures who, who helped guide the construction or composition of that book is Franz Rosenzweig, this mm. 20th century philosopher, German-Jewish man who, um, he was a friend of Eugen Rosenstock and um, uh, who, who was also German-Jew converted. Rosenzweig was going to convert. and then, um, We should had, do a show on Rosenzweig too, by the way, you know, footnote, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, He's fascinating, fascinating. Totally. I absolutely love his work and just sort of the story of his life, um, which was tragically short. And, um, but uh, anyway, Rosenzweig um, was uh, what in Judaism is a Baal Teshuva, a master of return. Um, he, he, he recuperated his Judaism um, and devoted his life. Um, he could have been a great academic. Uh, well, actually, eventually, his he died in 1929, and eventually his academic career would have been foreshortened or else uh, gone into exile when the, the Nazis came to power. Right. But anyway, um, he could have he could have gone that route, but he didn't. He he devoted himself to running this thing called the Lair House in Frankfurt, um, and and basically just poured his life's work into trying to help the Jewish community recover its, its roots and rediscover itself and and find an authentically modern way to be. Jewish, because these are totally modern people. You know, this, these are you know consciousness soul people, modern intellectual Germans. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, so he he had this profound religious experience on Yom Kippur in 1913 um, that, that he decided, no, I won't be Christian. I think his, his a famous line attributed to him is, "How can I convert who weren't chosen?" Um, but anyway, he. Um, he, he wanted Christians to be Christian, though, as well. So his whole mm -hmm. his, his whole idea on the Star of Redemption is um, Judaism and Christianity are two essential components of, of a single mechanism. I was uh, going to say there's like centrifugal and centripetal forces the way they play off in Star yeah. of the World. Yeah, <laughs> it's really um, it's a beautiful vision of how the two religions can 
uh, or, or even destined, intended to work together. Um, so he presides over the book. Speaking of beautiful vision, why don't we have you read a passage? Mm, that's a great idea because I just put a cough drop in my mouth. So. <laughs> I'll talk for a minute yeah. while you're working. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> no, I was going to say, no, one of the things you were saying earlier was uh, when you're talking about escape, you know, that, that some people feel in consciousness, so we retreat to the past. Um, and there's a moment in, in the novel where McPhail gets, gets together with his old friend mm -hmm. in his mid-30s to play Dungeons and Dragons. Right. Oh yeah, which is kind of symbolic. Of that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's a whole chapter. It's a whole huge yeah. thing. Um, in the book, yeah, I guess I should plug it, plug it that way, um, or, or pitch it, or what am I trying to say? Advertise my book that way. Uh, if you wanted to read a really literary novel that also has a huge section in it of a bunch of guys in their thirties drinking heavily all day and playing Dungeons Dragons, <laughs> mine is the book for you. This is your book. My yeah. actor brother-in-law just. He his Christmas gift is figured out this year. Yeah, <laughs> New York City actor. I mean, the rest of it is all like Wings of Desire and Franz Rosenzweig and I don't and you know Michael never ending story. Never ending story. Yeah. But but there yeah, there's a Dungeons and Dragons in the middle. Um, it's got a, it's got something for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, if this is the novel for. Um. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and so I mean that's part of the, the one way you can talk about my book, I suppose, is to say that it's just a a giant interrogation of the idea of fantasy. And, and I guess one of my basic convictions about the concept of fantasy is that there's good fantasy and there's bad fantasy. It's not intrinsically one or the other. Um, and McPhail has a lot of problems with fantasy that is um, either clearly bad um, in the form of like just lust, you know, and adultery or um, fantasy that's ambiguous, that haunts and disturbs him. But he also is prone. He also has these moments of more visionary, wholesome fantasy um and um the fantasy is just kind of this huge theme and of course dungeons and dragons is like a, a mode of fantasy um I, but i do wonder a lot about that gaming um I, I have a lot of thoughts and reservations the phenomenon of gaming it has become so um these are all like episode after episode after episode like when you've mentioned the phenomenon of gaming we need to talk about that you know yeah, I don't know, man. I just, I, I just... they're also laden. Every sentence you offer, Jonathan, is so laden. Like, I, I have various thoughts on fantasy. Like, that's the whole world. There's a social criticism there. I can't yeah. wait to read them. I only have the superficial. Everyone else has to chip in to go in deep, in depth. Yeah. But yeah, I could, I mean, so um, yeah, there, there's just many, many different where McPhail reports, uh, either like in his current, in that one year that's just a few years ago, or that he remembers from his past, um, that are his various encounters with visionary or fantastical experiences or, or something like that um and uh one of them has to do with desire but there's some but but he also talks about um how it relates to um specific places and so the, the book is very um sort of obsessed or focused on places certain places and, and maps and maps. maps for mcphail's desk right the map of mm, yeah yeah um yeah he has these these usgs <laughs> maps um the geological survey maps um uh, that that's that would be something taken from my real life. I have this actual. I, I see one right behind you. Yeah, there's one behind you. Oh well, that was actually my dad's in his oh, office God. while I was growing up. That's just a no. That I I could show you them. They're right here, but I don't think you would. See <laughs> on the um, they wouldn't come through very well. Uh, but they um yeah, he's obsessed with places. So by far the the two places that are most prominent in the book are the Cincinnati and Pittsburgh. Um, but there are other places that bear significance for him. And of those, Ireland, or a particular region of Western Ireland, um, would be the most prominent. So, I mean, Michael, if, if you had wanted me to read from one yeah. of those parts of the book, that would be great. I'd be happy to. All right, go so, right ahead. Um, I kind of want to do but like two parts. So, there's two sections of the book uh, that take place there, and um, the first one is in a dream that MacPhail has uh, on Christmas uh, or Christmas, um, and um, it's very long, and I, I won't read anything like the the whole of it. But in this dream, he's he's walking down the coast of the Loophead Peninsula in Western Ireland with a, an old friend that he's not friends with, at least at that time in the novel, named Joel Stein, uh, who's a Jewish guy, um, all Jewish, unlike McPhail, who's who's half Jewish. And they they walk together down the coast, and eventually end up in uh, Mount Brandon, Knock Brandon. Um, which is not in Loophead. It's on the other side of Tralee Bay and, and the Shannon. But um, I'm not going to read quite that far um, to the ending of it. And I won't read the beginning of it either. But there's uh, McPhail is also this, this super learned guy. 
um, it, it's, it's a problem. It goes back to the consciousness soul stuff. He, he knows all this stuff and he can't keep himself from like digressing and talking about it in this essayistic way. And the novel really pushes the boundary novel and essay. Um, so even though he's reporting this like totally bizarre visionary dream, he also goes on these like etymological digressions and stuff. <laughs> um, and they, they seem to happen. I wasn't really thinking about this, but they seem to happen in Ireland, especially. So, um, so we'll have a bit of Irish here anyway. Um, maybe there would be some things that don't make sense because you know, the rest of the story, but I'll just, just read the part about the, the nature of, of certain places in Ireland and the kind of world that MacPhail's pining for. Okay. A few minutes walk farther down the high coast is all a dream. Joel paused us again, this time turning his gaze inland to Tovar Key, the holy well dedicated to St. Key as it's poorly anglicized. So K-E, but the Irish spelling there is C-A-O-I-D-H. Um, the name intrigues me for its indeterminate verbal root, which may have to do with blindness, lamentation, or even paths. So I've often joked to Q, MacPhail's wife, that Key is the patron saint of those who go lamenting down the pathways of the blind, or the blind who walk in the ways of lamentation, or those who lament their blindness as they struggle to follow the way. All over the countryside of Ireland are to be found in abundance two kinds of ruin, holy wells, tovracha, and what are known variously as ring forts or fairy forts. In Irish, they're called rachana, which means the circular embankments themselves, or lisana, which denotes the enclosed spaces. And so these are enclosures of earthen mounds or hedges in ring shape, sometimes quite large and set within each other concentric. They are usually left untended, whatever grows on them uncut, for to meddle here is to invite otherworldly interference. They are artifacts of human culture, not that of fairy, built and occupied from the Bronze Age through the early medieval period. But it's as if the assumption came naturally and worked itself out in folk idea that when humankind no longer cares for these earthen ramparts, they should become the province of the world behind the world, its strongholds and gateways. Key's well is in the middle of a fairy fort. Usually these wells are thought to cure some ailment, and Key's well, the water is supposed to help the eyes. Around and around the inside of the ring of hedge, Joel and I walked, seeing over the hedge the cattle in the pasture land and the larks overhead, or the jagged shore of Clare, tilting away and crashing. The raised earth of the fairy forts reminds me of the sinuous mounds built by Native Americans in the valleys of the Ohio that so fascinated me as a boy. Always an uncanny feeling would come over me by those worn green edifices, and I felt the same thing now as well. Eventually, Joel put his hand on my elbow and guided us away from the little structure like a miniature chapel that housed the well in the center. The structure is simple, whitewashed, a small cross on top. You can hardly go inside, the floor being mostly the open face of the well. The interior walls bear a crucifix draped by a rosary, icons, a few votive candles and other paraphernalia, all left there over many years, but none of it of recent devotion, and I don't know when the last pattern day would have been celebrated at Key's Well. In the strange imposition of English upon Ireland, patron, as in a patron saint, morphed into pattern, as if the communion of saints, in this case Ireland's local legendary saints with one foot in fairy, were coordinates on a vast holy map of the island. Joel caused us to kneel before the well and spoke again about stories, something about one true story that makes valid all storytelling. And he was saying something about marriage, the marriage of complementary spirits, spirit of God and spirit of place, the holy person and the holy place. The word of God, he may have said, is a true window on the world, yet fragile. Oh, how it is threatened, a marriage dying away, passion spent, love misconstrued, something like that. And Joel was warning me that if the marriage of the spirit of God and the spirit of place were broken, then language itself would be broken and there could be no more story. I was mystified and annoyed by this and made to rise from the well, but Joel bade me first drench my eyes in the water, and I did. As I washed my eyes, I because I could make no prayer and felt no faith. And then, whatsoever faith shall safeguard this earth and all her times and weathers, that shall end, Joel said, as he stood and I stood next to him. And whatsoever faith shall waste this earth, even that shall be swept from off the face of this earth, nor shall the earth remember that falseness any more than the maker of the earth and all her times and weathers, remembers the sin of the repentant man. Then I followed Joel away from Keyswell and out of the fairy fort, and we walked on down the coast. There were other fairy forts on higher ground, inland, and everywhere the scent of dung and turf fires in the air. Always we could hear the sound of the sea, cold and beating on a broken shore. When at last we came to the end of Loophead, Joel pointed over the water to a distant mountain, glaring over the waters, and said, when there are no more stories, it is time to float. And with that, we stepped off the cliff and walked across the air over the mouth of the Shannon and Tralee Bay 
and soon found ourselves at Sleahead on the coast of Corcoruña, standing where the skirts of Knock Brennan come down to the sea. So that's all in a Beautiful. dream, obviously. <laughs> uh, walking over. Um, and there's a good deal more about Ireland in there. Thoreau gets quoted, along with John Scotus Erigina, or however people say that guy's name, uh, at the top of the mountain. I have heard various ones. Erigina, Erigina. There's no, yeah, there's absolutely no consensus. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'd like to say Arugina myself. Yeah, I like that one too. But I, uh, that's not, I don't know. You know, that guy. Yeah. I have no authority. I know. <laughs> that Irish guy. He was a yeah. good guy. Good guy. Buddy at the bar. Yeah. Arugina. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that, that's uh, fairly early in the month. It's all part of this insane, huge, long dream that McPhail has. Um, and I think uh, it gives our listeners too, Jonathan, a sense that you're definitely playing with the very marrow of the stuff that we're trying to do on this podcast, Regeneration Podcast, right? Good. Uh, you know, and you're, uh, if they were dream images, yeah, they're dream images. But the notion of using springs, you know, um, water, air, you know, the, we you're freeing all these up. You know, and that, um, you know, they're the very stuff of what the symbolic, when we were talking about the symbolic world to begin with, you know, it's, it's the very stuff of what we need. Yeah. I have not read the novel, but, and I'm not lying. I'm guaranteed you know, meeting you, <laughs> guaranteed to read it because I found that very captivating. And well, uh, if, if for nothing else, the Dungeons and Dragons scene too. Yeah, yeah I wish I could read that, uh, but it's <laughs> it's got it's got five guys talking and it's actually written. Yeah, um, yeah. So- it would be difficult for me to... I've seen some group sketch comedy start to play on that more because there's obviously um, so much material. And I forget where I was. I have a son-in-law, my oldest daughter's husband, who showed us some great sketch comedy of guys playing D&D. And I thought, whoa, this has got to be the first of many because it's just rife for material. There's, yeah, yeah I, I actually, there's a, a group of... Um, okay. There's also live shows, right? You know, where people, we watch them play. Dungeons and know, Dragons. Is that true for D&D? I know that's it true. Is. I, you can watch people video games. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true for D&D okay, too. Yep. Um, which just fries my I can't Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. So the D&D, I mean, the, the, look, I'm by no means McPhail, but lots of things in the book are based real experiences I've had. I, I had a, a very similar dream in that exact place, which I happen to know uh, connection with um, some Irish people. Now, did you and Katie live there for a little while? We didn't live there. We or stayed. stayed for a You've long. Had some extent yeah. there, okay. including East Sixteen. Which do you want me to read any more? I I, I don't want to run out the clock. Uh, there is no. Another... Go ahead. Yeah, I, I'd like to hear about the baptism. Yeah. So um, McPhail's later in the book, he relates how he was in, in Easter of twenty six, and this is unlike that first passage. It was based on, um, or at least some of it. Uh, this is completely not my life. Much as I might wish that it was, um, it's kind of dramatic. But anyway, uh, McPhail's just recounts his. Um, his baptist conversion um and, and just the thing to remember is uh, q is his wife and that's mm-hmm. actually an acronym k-e-w um and uh so like like Mc, and um annette <laughs> <mentioned>, katie <laughs> um, well but it's not she, she's very much not actually Katie at all <laughs> sure about when i was when i first encountered her in the book i said it sounds like katie it does <laughs> you know I, i'll tell you the secret just say it's not not at all not at all i'll tell you the secret origins of their names so so early in the book mcphail um, says that KEW is an acronym and that it, it was it would be his wife's complete acronym before it was that before she changed her name married. So that means her, her maiden name is a W and it means that McPhail's real surname begins with. And I wrote a novel in about 2013, 24, which I called The Comedy, Dante. I never published it. I made an effort to. And I, um, but some people, real people out there in the world have read this. Um, I probably never <laughs> I will publish <laughs> any version of it, but in that novel, there were there were there was a very important character named Catherine, and um, the 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 male character, male protagonist, was had the last name of Weinstein. And so I actually thought of these two, uh, McPhail and his wife Q, as this guy Jesse Weinstein, mm-hmm. Catherine Winterhart. I took them from that abandoned work and the center of um, just to give some insight to the ridiculous process by which fiction comes into <laughs> yeah, yeah. distance. I know. Um, but that's that's what is behind the initials and stuff. But um, anyway, now you're going to hear about the name um, MCPH um, and then McFall. Anyway, by the beginning of 2016, Q had brought me emotionally to joining the Catholic Church and teaching fiction and poetry. It showed me just how essential a Western, that is to say, largely Christian tradition was to my chosen art. It was almost as though if I were to be a writer, then I must be a Christian, and the most archaic and deeply rooted sort of Christian I'd be. 
The roots of my words had to go far back and skip nothing along the way. I must be an incarnational writer if I would know and put on paper something of the union and beauty of body and there was nothing, however, about the Christian religion in America that appealed to me in any form I had ever encountered. In America, Christianity struck me as a totally artificial, superficial, and usually hypocritical imposition, an alien and exploitative ideology grafted on. But in Britain and Ireland, anywhere in Europe, things were different. More accurately, the landscape. And since rekindling our relationship shortly after Hugh's move to Chicago in 2011, Hugh and I had spent a portion of every year in England visiting her friends there and in Ireland, whereas I've stated Sue's distant relation old cottage. Hugh was able to bring me around to joining the Catholic Christian role distinct from merely intellectual, because she was able to show it to me in Ireland, and there I was able to experience it as something out of doors, something sunk into the very rock and mixed with the tides of in County Kerry, where Knock Brennan runs. She was acquainted with an old priest, an elder friend of her second cousin or he was a wizard-like man, unlike any other priest I've ever met, Irish or not, who traipsed around Kerry smoking a pipe, and he was one of the people there who still spoke any. Persuaded by Q, this priest, though past the age of 80, agreed to baptize me in a peculiar but lit way in the early spring of 2016, with ice-cold water at the break of dawn in the ruins of Kilmalcater at the foot of Knock Brennan in Kerry. And the name of the ruin is more accurately spelled something like Kilmalcater, with C-I-L-L-R, Irish or... Um, <laughs> The Church of Mal Cater, a name meaning, well, what exactly? The Irish Mal, a word appearing in what is supposed to be the original form of my mother's maiden name, MacPhail, denotes baldness or flatness, but in the early Christian period, it could servant, perhaps in the sense of an ascetic who had taken the tonsure. As for Cater, or some such word, it means the cedar tree. So Mal Cater, the servant of cedar, for Jesus was said in legend to have been crucified on a cross, that would be the same Sigabam or road in the second made from the wood <laughs> sorry there's some old english the man malcator was supposed to have been originally from ulster perhaps not far from where the macphail or rather the malfowl originated as for the second part of malfowl seems to be a word for traveling roaming journeying fowl that has perhaps the same meaning it means perhaps a wandering scholar malcator is supposed to have built his church jointly with saint brendan that building no longer stands but perhaps some of its gray stones color of a storm are part of the ruin that is there, which dates from the 12th century. And so I had requested to join to the church, myself become a servant of the tree among the stones of Kilmalcator. After I was baptized, Hugh and I followed the path from the ruins to the top of Knock along the stations of the cross described in the dream I had with Stein. What I found almost immediately upon returning to America, Chicago at that time, was that I no longer had any access to that elemental ancient Christianity, even though Q and I attended the most sumptuous and traditional church in the city. That was just the problem. It was in the middle of a giant American city, and like many Catholic churches in that city, it had been built in the ornate Polish and this unlike the gray Atlantic stone of Kerry piled in altar and temple, had nothing to do with anything in my hair, and I felt that. It was like going to church. And... But among those stones on the windswept fringe of Ireland, it wasn't like It was something original, mysterious, ascetic. By the time of the scandal in August of 2018, after which, except for my daughter's baptism, I no longer wished to enter a church, I was probably looking to beg off. At least I was in America. But I was left with the memories of my baptism in that primitive dawn at the world. There was something in that moment to which I had to remain true, but I no longer knew what to do or how to do or how I could make it something that might be passed down. That's enough. Beautiful. Beautiful. Job. Beautiful. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, and again, the listeners, you're playing with so many themes in that that resonate. Go ahead, Michael. It, well, just, you know, no, we haven't told this, but but John and I are kin, <laughs> you know. In, so, the spirit. in the spirit. Well, no, I mean... This is interesting. I mean, it really dawned on me as John was reading that, uh, I mean, I know John and Katie because of Jesus, the imagination, because Katie submitted a poem to the first year and, and I only knew her via email. And I was, this was when uh, Marygrove College still existed and I still had a real job. <laughs> like, where did she see, I'm just curious, Michael, where did she see the call for submissions? Uh, I don't know. Like, I have to ask her. I that don't is know. a good question. Yeah, I wonder where anybody saw it. I just yeah. knew the guy. Yeah. Nobody, I don't know. But, uh, yeah. and so, so that was 2016, well, 2017. And I think it must have been 2018 when you entered the church, John? 17. 2017. Okay, so it was 26. So yeah, so just imagination already coming out. And uh, or it was coming out and I got an email from Katie and she said, you know, we're kind of new to Michigan and my, my husband's coming into the church and he, he likes your, he's read your books and he likes what you have to think. Could, would you be my being his sponsor? That's like, great. And I'm like, 
but we've never actually met. <laughs> Who cares? I said, well, I know. I said, when I wanted to, I actually, and I, I, I said, well, can I do it by proxy? Because at the time, our, our priest was really ailing. And if I wasn't there on the altar, I was afraid he collapsed. So I, but I said, well, I, I can't, can I do it by proxy? But then, you know, if, if I'm going to do this, you guys have to come to our house for extra dinner. And that's the first time I met John and Katie. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> was on Easter dinner at my house at the farm in 2017. What a great story. It was. And ever since then, they've been like family to me. And so I'm reading this story about your baptism and, you know, oh. and, and the whole right. world just kind of came together right, I mean, right there baptism. at that moment. <laughs> I know, but, or, <laughs> but, but, but I'm thinking about your baptism in relationship to Fail's baptism. And I mean, mine was great. I, I was baptized at Old St. Mary's Town, right? But, um, and I actually have no clue whatsoever. If it, it, you want to bring a canon law again, Mike, and, and, and sort this out. I think us. we're going to be talking about like three twelve point four nine two seven. But let's uh, St- that's my prediction. Star date. Just say star date before you. <laughs> I don't, yeah, yeah. Star date. <laughs> canon law date. Yeah. Um, I have no clue if it's actually licit or possible mm-hmm. to be baptized as reports. This message I just read. It's just it. When I thought of it, when I imagined it, sounds it, good. It sounded so good that I was like, the "Hell with this! I'm a novelist. I can do whatever I want." Yeah, Saint Paul and the eunuch, right? You just get out and you throw water on the guy. That's right. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. he's a priest. You know, it's it is a church. Well, it's yeah. licit. It's licit for anybody to baptize at any. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so you're good. Mm-hmm. You're yeah, good. so I, I figured... McPhail is good. McPhail's good. <laughs> He's good yeah. with God. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and so is, yeah. We find your your novel to be acceptable in, but it won't be put on <laughs> the does index. Not have a We're not going to put it on the index. It's not going to be on the index about. according to uh, 419.27972 pi. <laughs> I keep waiting for the Mandalorians have come in with the word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, fascinating. So it, yeah. Well, the thing is, for me, this so this whole episode, my relationship with John, you know, my relationship with you, Mike, because we all you were present with the imagination. I was. So it's it's all we got to make clear right that here. this was an artistic conception, not type of some other conception. That's right. Mm-hmm. And immaculate. And it's yeah. Oh, well, it was immaculate. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So this whole thing has just kind of come together for me beautifully in yeah. mystical, was, imaginative way, Jim. You know, and let, let me let me say something about this journal too. Is that you know, having been a contributor, you know, that there's some. I was reading this uh, Ireland Mark Patrick Hetterman, the abbot of Glenstall Abbey in Ireland. He and his friend Richard Carney <laughs> and some others. You know, there's a great history of these journals that are kind of yours isn't occasional. It's been annual, but these journals that uh, they had one called the Crane Bag. Uh, in Ireland, similar to your enterprise here. And, um, you know, when people just feel inspired, they start a journal for a while. And I love the fact that it, you know, you wouldn't, you're not worrying about whether it goes for 10 years or 20 years or whatever. But again, this notion that uh, we gathered, we wanted to do something practical and Michael started a journal. It's kind of like this podcast. I also think too, uh, Jonathan, in your essay, in this edition of Jesus, the imagination about your uncle, Larry, Wu Wei and, but, you know, you say something so relevant to one of the themes of this, but you talk about, and even in your novel, you say the guy in the consciousness soul could be so into his head, but you make the distinction about between people who think about things and things, right? You know, our thoughts about things and things. And that distance can be a larger than the distance across uh, this infinite space that drives me so nuts to tie it all together, right? Yeah, but yeah. Uh, if we can, if we can, and that's what I say, this John Cooper Powis, a transfer of reverence from religion to life. It's talking about that same journey we have to take from ideas about yeah. things for practical reasons. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love him. He's my hero. No, I love it when people say his middle name. Chris, you did so, <laughs> but I said more. It's Cooper, really. But I probably said a little more Cowper that first but time. Okay, John's John Cooper just, Powis. Yeah. John's like got poet, philology like down. Cooper. Yeah, yeah right, right. So, um, so, so speaking of Jesus, imagination. Give it a plug, Michael. This, no, the plug. I mean, I don't know if you, you guys know. You've seen. How do people get it? You've never said how people <clears throat> find it. Do they subscribe? Do they buy it in their local bookstore? What you do they can do? buy it in local bookstores or. Get it through the Angelico Press website. Mm-hmm. They will give you some links there. Uh, and well, here's the thing. So we, you guys, have been on this journey with you know since Katie. Well, you were in the first first edition, Mike and yeah. Katie. So it was Katie, and then Katie's been in a couple times. John's been in a few <laughs> times. You've been in throughout the whole project. Um, <clears throat> this one, as I write introduction, was more personal than I thought it was going to be when I announced when I announced the the theme, which is flesh and spirit. I was thinking it was going to go more in a, I don't know, I hate the term, but creation spirituality kind of way, if you know what I mean. Um, 
Um, so John just put the link to Angelico Press in there, by the way. It got, it ended up being, well, ended up being a very heavy issue, especially for me, because I, when I announced it, it must've been May of 2021. Uh, we didn't know, but my wife had cancer of the uterus this time. And I, and I write about that in the introduction. So for me, it became very personal, very quickly. And this idea of flesh and spirit, and, or, and, it, and what happened is many of the submissions in were also about these kind of heavy projects, you know, life and death, including Therese Schoeder-Schrieker, her essay that comes toward the end, which is... It's wild, isn't it? Those, it, those snippets from her work with that it, dying pic. Wow. It's just... It's when she sent it to me originally, I was, <laughs> I had to read it in parts because I, you know, I was going through I this photocopied myself. and gave it to a friend this morning, you know, and you I know? told her, I said, well, it's just, I'm kind of going through a thing right now. <laughs> so it's kind of hard for me to take. And right after that, uh, Christopher Bamford <clears throat> died. He was the, the editor and publisher at Steiner. <clears throat> he was long ago part of the Lindisfarne, which is where, how I think Therese met him all these. And I had been corresponding with Chris for a while. And in fact, at the very end of his imagination uh, is a translation from Novalis that he gave maybe two years ago, you know, and he, he reached out to me looking for a publisher for his own work. And this was a man dying of cancer at the time. Um, and then he, he died, I think, in May of this year. And so I, I decided we had to dedicate to Chris. And if anybody knows his work, uh, his got his I think his most important work uh, called the An Endless Trace, which is touches on a lot of the themes. And this is why I think he was attracted to my work when he found it. Celtic spirituality is in there. Celtic spirituality, uh, the Rosary, Novalis, um, Novalis, yeah. And uh, so that was you know so it was it was interesting the way this one kind of uh, mirrored my own my own life situation of course. So, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm hoping the next one does too, because the ne next one's on a much happier topic. What's the theme again? <clears throat> um, the next year's theme is uh, the household of... Oh, uh, yeah. The submissions due January 1st. No, I, huh? I changed it. I changed the cutoff date for Feast of the Circumcision. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> get it? Nobody got that joke. <clears throat> the cutoff date is, is January 1st. I get it. I get it. I get it. I but was I thinking of that. Said. When you first said it, I was thinking of uh, flesh and spirit. Well, you know, you I go. thought, yeah, no, but yeah, it won't be long now. That's what my mm -hmm. dad said. Uh, uh, I think, you know, it, we're living for a couple of crisis. Yeah. I mean, find the issue, uh, maybe more than they might initially. I think it ties back to something back. you said earlier, too, Jonathan, about um, taking the whole Mike, you broke the world, the um, you know, the flesh and spirit is tied to that. That's oh, sorry about that. Can you hear me now? You're breaking you up. Don't listen for me. Yeah, That's you guys better. talk. <laughs> well, so anyway. oh, can I? Can you hear me now? No, yeah. I probably had to go in a in a few minutes to yep. really. My, my my wife has to leave for work, uh, and I had to take care of our sick son. Um, but I, I yeah, I, you might be coming through now, Mike. That's better, Mike. Yeah. Oh, it's nothing too important. Yeah. Can you hear me or no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're good oh, now. Okay. No, it's just uh, Jonathan. The um, flesh and spirit was echoed to me in something you said earlier, and I won't have the the wording right, but that when we need to embrace um, you know, the whole world that includes kind of the underworld, the totality of it, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that I think flesh and spirit gets at that, you know, that we still, and I think in your, in the snippet you read about Irish Christianity and American Christianity, there's a, there's a, a brilliant guy who lives in the American Southwest, Stephen Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E. And he's an anthroposophist, but he, he was studying like the Mexican mysteries, he called it. But I, um, between that and like maybe as a patron, Our Lady of Guadalupe, there could be a future, I keep on positing, that American Catholicism, you know, that when Dostoevsky went to Europe and saw it, it was a beautiful graveyard, whatever's going on in Europe now. But we're going to, the American civilization still is probably not to form, according to Spengler, for, you know, a couple hundred years. But it will be, it'll be tied to the land and its specialty might be formed in this, you know, this connection with the underworld, you know, so this kind of tepid American Catholicism you saw, or at least uh, McPhail did in comparison with Ireland. I'm, I'm still very optimistic with like works like Jesus, the imagination, what you're yeah. doing, that our, that our Catholicism can be the, you know, very pioneering in this way with a strong connection to the body, you know, a strong connection, not everything about heaven, top down, divine feminine, bottom up, earth, matter these yeah. are the things i i i would i would share that optimism i mean i was just yeah. at the catholic imagination conference especially women of my generation absolutely are, are are writing wonderful doing some great thing about embodiment um so i i yeah i think that's definitely true um just a quick 
parting note, dismal uh, as I, I have to go, but uh, you know, the Irish, medieval Ireland is a wonderful place for um, visions of the underworld. I mean, the Irish mm -hmm. have a fantastic imagination. There's just so many crazy descriptions in Latin and in Irish of hell, visions mm -hmm. of hell and purgatory uh, that um, <laughs> I mean, we just, we tend to assume these, oh, that's terrible. It's morbid that we, that we can't, it's a good thing we're past that now, but it's not true at all. We absolutely need we need to integrate it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You cannot just have comes on with it. Okay. So the demonic, but um, yeah, I hate to end that. I like it. Oh. Just like Jesus, the imagination yeah. ends on that note. Yeah. I mean, it ties into the, the wah, wah. here's our new theme music. Wah, wah, wah. Right. Well, no. It is well, almost no. Halloween, right? It is <laughs> yeah. almost all it saints is. and all souls. Yeah, so. absolutely. Why not? So, Why not? so um, there, were, there were many things we could have talked about in Jesus' imagination and in your novel, but I don't want to keep too long, John. And but I will say, available wherever fine books are sold, brothers and sisters. Angelico Press, okay. Angelico Press, and Slant Books, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Slant. Yeah, website will have links to several places. All right. Well, thanks a lot, John. It was great talking. And by Everybody, the way, thanks for listening. Yeah, John. John, you're close by. My, uh, what do you call it? Juniper berry spruce twig methaglin will be bottled today. And last weekend, last weekend I ran the still in a pear brandy. Mm. Both cures for colds. That's yeah. right. You, yeah. yeah. This will no. cure what ails you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thank you everybody for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. We'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.